As we're doing that, go ahead and take your Bibles, open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're continuing our Bible study in the book of 2 Corinthians. We are in the middle of chapter number 5. We're coming to the end of chapter number 5, actually. Um, as you guys are getting ready, obviously, let me just say this. I know that everybody's aware, you couldn't not be aware if you wanted to, that this is the week we have our national elections and um, we make it a point here at First Baptist Church not to get into those weeds and uh, we do that on purpose. But I, but I will say that I do really hope that you're registered and I do hope that you vote. I think you should vote your biblical convictions. I think that's what you should do. You should be a good citizen and you should vote. And if you don't vote, don't complain. That's all I got to say. But I'm going to go way out on a limb here. I know the biblical consequences for a false prophet, so I'm going to be very careful in what I say. As a result of these elections, here's my prophecy, something big is going to happen. <laughs> go, going way out on that one. Either way, right? Here's what I know. No matter what happens with human elections, uh, God's going to use it. And God's going to use it. This might not be the most enthusiastic amen next. He's going to use it to help bring in the end. That's true. That's true. Now, how that comes, okay, we don't know. But it's coming. So the question that each of us owes ourselves: am I ready? Am I ready for that end that's coming? So concerning your eternal soul and salvation, are you ready to meet the Lord if you have never received personally the forgiveness of your sins? You see, if you're not sure of the answer to that question, good news is you can take care of that today. But most of us are church folk. Most of us come to church and have made such a decision, like those who follow the Lord in baptism today. That was a blessing. If you're a saved person, are you ready for the rapture of the church? Are you ready for what comes immediately after the rapture of the church? That's the judgment seat of Christ. You see, it is coming. And that is the subject of our study. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the entire book of 2 Corinthians is all about ministry. And the specific context of chapter 5 is judgment. That's where we left off. And so last week we saw verse number 10, which says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking a closer look at what will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the title I've given today's message. What will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ? Now, this question should interest you as you're considering your life, as you're considering your rewards, as you're considering how you've made decisions in your life and how the fire of God's judgment that we looked at last week might affect the effort that you've put forth. I feel confident in saying that by the time you leave here today, you'll have no excuse for not knowing what God's looking for, because we're going to break that down for you today. I believe the subsequent verses after verse 10 define and describe for us what God intends for us to know, the things that He is looking for as He's going to judge our works, our service in the body of Christ after our, our salvation. So it's not super hard to understand, but uh, we'll pray about it in just a second. Let me read for you verses 12 through 17. That's our text today. And then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that you may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them, and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He's a new creature. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. There's some well-known verses in this section, and there's some elements of this section of Scripture that, well, quite frankly, you should commit to memory. Uh, We'll get into that, but let's just ask God to, to be our teacher today. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we are truly grateful for the truth of your word. We're thankful for Uh, Even the fact that while there is yet still a judgment of how we have behaved ourselves in the family of God, you have told us about it, and uh, Lord, we want to learn about it today. We want to better understand what exactly it means. What does it really look like? And Lord, most specifically, my prayer is for every brother and sister in this room, everyone listening to this online, everybody who's hearing this message today to consider themselves to consider how they have lived, consider the choices they have made, to consider the things that maybe they're holding out on you, and to consider whether any of that's really worth it, considering the fact that we truly are near the very end, and that this day may be upon us sooner than we think. That being the case, it's a good perspective. It's a good, it's a good shift for us to consider how you would have each of us to behave. So that's my prayer, that you would make clear to each and every one of us the specific thing or things that might need to change so that our lives can glorify you to the maximum amount. Lord, we love you and pray that that would be the case. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, three points. It's a sermon. We typically go with three. I don't know why. It just works out that way. That's the amount of scripture we take at a time. And so what are the things that are going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ? This is real deep. You ready for this? Number one, the right stuff. Stuff is a funny word, you know. Stuff is a word that we use in English for, it's a, it's a word we use when we have a poor vocabulary. That's just some stuff. Uh, we're going to get to it in here in just a second. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to go back a second to verse number 11. Because if you were with us last week, actually I didn't fully complete verse 11. I left the last part of verse 11 out because it really rolls into verse 12, right? Verse 11 says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord... We talked about that last week. We persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God. We talked about it up to that point. But this last part I didn't really talk about. And I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. So the judgment seat of Christ, referred to as the terror of the Lord, is going to make us manifest to God. Okay. But it also is going to make us manifest in your consciences, right? This manner of life that we're going to be discussing, this right stuff. We'll get to that in a second. So in other words, even now, Paul says to the Corinthians, you can see for yourselves the manner of life that we live. And in verse number 11, it says, we persuade men, right? Who we really are is made manifest obviously to God, of course, by how we live. And by extension then, similarly, your consciences should be clear about our manner of life. This is what Paul is saying. So now we get into verses 12 and 13. For, it makes the connection to that last part of verse number 11, we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf that ye may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. So he says, we commend not ourselves again unto you. If you haven't noticed yet in our study of 2 Corinthians, Paul seems to, this is a very personal book for Paul. He seems to regularly be defending himself because he's regularly under personal attack. And while he's under personal attack, he stands on the truth of God's word and he defends himself and his apostleship and his lifestyle and his ministry and his manner before them. And so he says, we're not doing it again because he's already done it a bunch. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 12, where he said, for our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. In other words, 
with sincerity, godly sincerity, simplicity. Man, our rejoicing, our conscience is clear. Listen, you should be aware of the fact of how we have lived among you. Or you could go into chapter number 3, in the first couple of verses of chapter number 3. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you? Or letters of recommendation from you? Then he goes on and he says, Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Paul says, We persuade men, in verse number 11. Basically, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, We persuaded you. Your very existence in Christ, the fact that you're saved, the fact that you're learning, the fact that you're here, is all the letter of commendation that I really need. That's the confirmation of the ministry God's given me. Chapter number 4, verse number 2. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves, once again, the connection to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So there's something about living your life the way God wants you to live it that not only makes who you are manifest to God, he obviously understands that, but it also makes it evident to others around you who are paying attention. And so that kind of a life, like you shouldn't be the most godly guy around and everybody's like, oh, really? Like that shouldn't be the case, right? So in this text, in verse number 12, for example, uh, he uses this word to glory. Okay, glory is one of those words that's used in the Bible that has some different meanings that sometimes people misplace. And really the idea of glorying in this context is, is to rejoice in or to, to make your boast in, but not in a prideful boasting, but, but in a rejoicing kind of a context. So ask yourself this, for example. What makes you happy? Or maybe in a little deeper level, what is it that thrills your soul? What is that thing? Well, whatever the answer to that question really is inside of you, you know what that is? That's the testimony of your conscience. That's what that is. It's being made manifest in your conscience, the thing that you can actually rejoice in. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you should have a clear conscience concerning us. So as a result, you can give glory to God, right, for the example that you see lived out in us. This isn't boastful. This isn't prideful. He's matter of fact. He's just letting them know that his life is an example. That's why over and over again in the Scriptures, he talks about how they should follow his example, right? He says, to glory on our behalf. That doesn't mean glorify us like you glorify the Lord. It means you can rejoice on our behalf. Somebody's a good example for a change. Why is that? Why is that so important? That the testimony of the consciences of others concerning your manner of life. Why is that so important? Well, he says right in these verses, so that you can have the proper way to answer others who might glory in the wrong things. You see, there's a bunch of people... Here's the thing. The world has heroes. They're just not the right heroes. And you as Christian people in this world, you should... Have some heroes in your life. You should have people that you look up to. You should have people that are exemplary for you. But, I don't know, if 2020 didn't teach us nothing else, I would say a good percentage of those that used to be heroes in your life from the world of professional sports may not necessarily qualify to be heroes in your life anymore, maybe. Maybe people in professional entertainment positions that used to be heroes you looked up to may not necessarily hold that high esteem anymore now that we've learned a little more about them. The truth is we probably should never have exalted them to that level anyway. The point is is that we should have some people that we can look up to. But people don't always do that. People glory in the wrong things, right? 
And so it warns us about what not to glory in, and it says, this is letter A on your notes, glory not in appearance. Glory not in appearance. Well, you just got done talking about how your life is made manifest to others. That's an appearance, isn't it? Yes, well, obviously the context is glory not in appearance only. Appearance without substance. The right stuff. That's why I picked that, okay? So today, in the world in which we live, it does seem to be propagated everywhere we turn, this idea, this concept, this value, that image is everything. You know, as long as you know, look good, fake it till you make it. I mean, just, just do whatever you got to do so that you look good when others see you. And people care more about what something looks like than what it's really made of. People today live their lives in such a way that they think that fashion is more important than function. And I'm not saying you should ditch having a pleasant appearance. I'm just saying without the substance of what's on the inside... The outer is just a facade. Listen, if you're, if you're over 21 years old, you should have already figured out that things are often not what they seem. Your, li- your eyes are lying to you every day. The media is designed to put out an appearance that's not real. That's what it's designed to do. And okay, you could say what you want about Hollywood and and all that sort of thing. But I mean, to be fair, that's kind of their job. I mean, their job is to create illusions. It's to put out fictional stories for the most part, right? It's entertainment. But in real life, right? So the topic of the day is politics. Internet, manipulating what you see. Those that control the media platforms, taking their bias and censoring what they don't want you to see, and hoping that you'll believe their version of the truth is truth. Um, True Marxist communism controls people not with fear and not with weapons. They control people with propaganda. That's how it works. That's how it's always worked. And that's what people are setting up to do in this country, right? They just continue to tell lies over and over and over until you believe them. So the old adage still stands true. If something just doesn't make sense, there's probably a buck in it. You ought to write that down. That's not in your notes. (laughs) Like if you get that, you got something today. If something doesn't make sense, there's a buck in it. Just follow the money. Now, say all that to say, let's apply this phenomenon to ministry. Because that is the context of 2 Corinthians, right? That is the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, specifically in the context of what God is going to judge. Glory not in appearance only. You see, true biblical ministry is not intended just to be a great show polished talent, impressive speech, always advertising, but not really delivering. That's why Paul could say what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, first five verses. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. What kind of an appearance was that? And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. You might have the idea that the great Apostle Paul was such a talented orator. But he says it's actually not true. I actually wasn't that great at putting together the speech. You know, Corinthians, that my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? There's a reason. 
that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I've often said it this way. If you could talk somebody into salvation, the devil can talk them out of it. People need to believe what they believe in truth because it's truth. And if the appearance seems to look cool, okay, that's a bonus. But if it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. What Jesus is looking for in you is the right stuff. The stuff on the inside, the substance and the reality that makes it something. There will be people that glory in appearance. Jude refers to them as being like clouds without water. Fruit trees without fruit. Boasting as though they're going to deliver something and never deliver it. Never deliver it. They promise results, but they don't come through. That's not the kind of ministry that's going to stand the fire of the judgment seat of Christ. But rather, he says, let her be in your notes, glory and heart. Okay, well, this is what we're talking about. Heart, sincerity and truth, right? Substance, reality, fruit, results, facts. This is what you glory in. This is your clean conscience. Because our ministry has the right stuff. It's got what it takes. It's real. And you can glory in that. You can rejoice in that. So back in verse 11, where he says, we persuade men. Like I referenced earlier in 2 Corinthians 3. We persuaded you. God has used this ministry. Your lives are a direct result of this ministry, right? And by the way, it may not always look pretty, but it works because it's based on the truth of God's Word. Here at First Baptist Church, we kind of have a motto that we go by as in leadership, and that is that we use ministry to build men, not vice versa. We don't use men to build a ministry. In other words, the end goal of what we are shooting for is to build Christ into you. And we'll use the ministry to do it. So if somebody stands in front of you, case in point, flawed as they may be, problematic as they may come across, if it is used to build in men substance, then we're all about it. But a lot of churches go at it the absolute opposite way. They are looking far and wide across this land to recruit and to hire the very best and smoothest talent so that they can build the stage show that they build so that that ministry looks as clean and polished and perfect as anything they've ever seen on a Hollywood stage. And as long as they can do that, they feel like, man, we've done something. Okay, well, I'm not even judging if your church happens to have a pretty smooth presentation. The question is, is there substance behind it? That's the issue, right? Because the, the focus of ministry is you are more important than programs. That's the focus. That's the right stuff. And you might also notice, if you glance back at verse number 13, when your conscience is clear, it doesn't really matter what other people think about you. You don't really care. Verse 13 says, For whether we be beside ourselves. Being beside ourselves is a term that's used to literally mean um, if we're crazy. We've lost our mind. We're a little schizo. We're beside ourselves. That's me? No, that's me. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> if people accuse me of being crazy, I don't care. I'm crazy for the Lord. That's what he says. It's to God. I'm, I'm beside myself for God. Or whether we be sober. What does he mean sober? Well, it doesn't just mean not drunk. It means clear-minded. Whether we be in our right mind. I'm not crazy. I'm in my right mind. If I'm in my right mind, and some people might judge that, hopefully. Well, I, the only reason is I'm, I've chosen to do what I do for you. I've given myself for you. All right, it doesn't really matter to me what you think. So, 
this is the idea, right? Now, that being the case, do you realize what that really means? Well, this is your notes again. You earn precious stones at the judgment seat of Christ when you invest in others. That's what it's all about. That's what Paul's talking about coming out of verse 11 into verse 12 into verse 13. We've spent ourselves for you. And we saw last week that precious stones represent people. Who cares what it looks like? Who cares what anybody else thinks? All that matters are the lives and souls of people. That's a Christ-centered view. That's what Jesus is looking for. You live your life that way, you'll be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. All right, the next one. The next one we're calling the right stimulus. This is verses 14 and 15. Now, if you don't typically use the word stimulus lately, you've probably heard about it a time or two on the news. We talk about our government is going to give us another stimulus check, and they, they've decided they're going to give away a little bit of money to everybody as a stimulus to stimulate the growth of the overall American economy. That's the idea. We give you some extra money, and a lot of you go and spend it on guns <laughs> or whatever. And the gun industry thanks you, and somebody's hoping that trickle-down effect is going to... I don't know. That's what a stimulus does. It's like a jump start, right? So for our lives in Christ... After salvation, God has given us the right stimulus. It says, for the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. That he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So that is to be the thing that gets us up in the morning. That needs to be the thing that keeps us going for him all day long. That should be the thing that drives us to serve him. And at the judgment seat of Christ, we saw already in 1 Corinthians 3 last week that he's going to judge our works of what sort they will be. What kind of works? What attitude was portrayed behind the deeds that we did? Or in other words, what was your motivation, letter A in your notes, your motivation? Well, let me tell you what your motivation better be. It better be the love of Christ. That's what it better be. It better not be to look cool in front of other people. It better not be to have some giant ministry so that you can be on the top of the pyramid. It better not be anything else to feed your flesh and your desire to be somebody cool that people pack in their pews and they come to listen to me every week. If your motivation is anything other than the, than the love of Jesus Christ, well, then your motivation is wrong, and you don't have the right stimulus, and that thing's going to burn up at the judgment seat. You better have the right motivation. That's important. His great... Now, I want you to notice something. His great love for you is proven, right? Romans 5.8, God commendeth His love toward us. He proved it and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His great love, the love of Christ constraineth us, right? It says that because we thus judge, if one died for all, then we're all dead. It's connected to the atonement. It's connected to the gospel. The very message of the gospel, Jesus Christ died for you. You are all born spiritually dead. The very message and essence of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 Verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 give us the entire definition of the gospel. Let's just grab verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. We were all dead in trespasses and sins, and He died for us. 1 Peter 3, 18 says it this way, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Boy, that's a good description. He had no sin. We had all the sin. But he died in our place. Why? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. 
right? So now we go back to our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. It says, he died for if he died for all. Well, that's a fact. He did die for all. Uh, by the way, he died for, can I emphasize it a little differently? He died for all. Not just some, not just the elect. 1 John 2, 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins, Christians. But not for ours only. But also for the sins of the whole world. If Jesus Christ died for the sins of the entire world, well, he did. He absolutely did. It goes on, it says, then we're all dead. Well, that's a fact. I mean, that's true. He's setting his standards. Ephesians 2, 1, I mentioned, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, spiritually dead, separated from God. That's what dead means in the Bible, separated. And then it goes on and it says in verse 15, that they which live, well, we were dead spiritually, so now we're talking about being alive spiritually, and so that's us. That's, that's the born-again Christian, the new life in Christ. That's, that's you, brothers and sisters, who have received the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. You're now saved, and you are alive now. You live in Him, right? So your motivation for ministry should just be the love of Christ. I, I love what... John the Apostle wrote in 1 John chapter 3 where it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. What kind of crazy love is that? And that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ who had no need to have to die, the wages of sin is death. He had no sin. He died for me. He died for you. That's his great love. That love is not something that after a year or two, you're like, I get over it. How do you get over it? How do you get over it? It says, for the love of Christ constraineth us. Constrains. You might not use that word all the time. You could think squeezes, right? Well, it happens to also be translated in other places, possessed, taken, keep, or kept. I like to think of it this way. The love of Christ grips me. It grips me. It constrains me. I'll never get over it. I'll never get tired of hearing other people's stories of grace. I'll never not be excited to see people get baptized and share even briefly the story of God's grace in their heart and in their life as their life is changed. And without shame, they stand and they say, God changed me too. How do you get over that? It's my motivation. You know what it motivates me to do? It's the letter B, to surrender. It's your surrender. That's what he's looking for. So now I want you to consider that phrase, the love of Christ. Because the way that it's written in the English language, actually, you can have a dual type application. The love of Christ, meaning Jesus Christ's great love for you. But you can also apply the love of Christ as your reciprocated love for him. It's your love of Jesus Christ as a demonstration of your thankfulness for what he did for you first. Isn't that 1 John 4, 19, right? We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. If he didn't love us first, we wouldn't love him. And go back to our text in verse 15 where it says, and that he died for all. Why? That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves but unto him. Right? So that, for the purpose that, we which live, we who are spiritually born again, we who are saved, should not henceforth anymore live unto ourselves. Boy, it's one of those all-encompassing statements, isn't it? That we, he gave his 
all. He surrendered everything. He died on the cross and he took your sins and he went to hell with them and he came back out victorious with the keys of death and hell and he led captivity ta captive and he went up to the right hand of the Father on high and he gave you seated in heavenly places and we are together with him and our feet are out of the miry clay and on the solid rock and we have a new life. And there's a reason why he left you here instead of him staying here. That you who live, quit living for yourselves. Live unto him. Live unto him. It goes on and says, who died. He gave away his life. He gave it to you. And he expects you to live it. Here on earth in his place. Does, the love, does your love of Jesus Christ motivate you to surrender all? He said this in John 14, 15, If you really love me, keep my commandments. Nobody likes that verse. It's still in there. How do we know if we really love him? Well, 1 John 3, 16. I mean, you don't really have to guess, do you? Hereby perceive we. You realize people can perceive if you really love the Lord or not? Here, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You see, you live your life with the right stimulus. You live your life motivated and gripped by the love of Jesus Christ. And you're not even factored in anymore. It all parlays out to rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. It absolutely does. If we are spiritually alive, then the scripture says we are dead to ourselves. And if you are dead to yourselves, brothers and sisters, that means you don't get a vote in what happens in your life. You don't even get a vote. Dead men don't vote. Well, they might, <laughs> but only in 2020, and it's against the law. But normally, in a righteous economy, dead men don't vote. That means that all your decisions are made for you. You see, as a Christian, you really, I mean, you make the decision to receive Christ as your Savior, you really only have one big decision to make in your life. And that's just to surrender all to Him. That's, that's really all you've got. Once you do that, listen, it, it actually makes it easier. It does. It makes it easier. Then you just roll with whatever He says. Now, you may not like what He says. It may put you in a tight spot to do what He says. But as far as wrestling with the decision, well, that's a done deal. I've already made my decision. 30 years ago I made, it's over. Now I'm just walking it out and hopefully don't blow it. But I've already made my decision. Your decisions are made by the one who bought you, 1 Corinthians 6.20. You're bought and paid for. All your decisions come from the head. Jesus Christ is the head of the body, right? Colossians 1.18. As he reveals to you his mind, 1 Corinthians 2.16, and there it is, the mind of Christ, the Word of God. So your job, Christian, is just to study the Word, study to show yourself approved, be discipled, understand Christ's mind, and just do what he says. Show him that you love him. Keep his commandments. Just obey him. When you do that, well, now, now we're talking about something. You see, this is in your notes. You earn gold at the judgment seat of Christ when you die to yourself. You earn gold when you die to yourself. Why? Because you're living for Christ alone. That magnifies His deity, which is your gold. You're motivated by nothing but His love. You exalt His life in your life. We sometimes call that Lordship. Lordship. Now, people get twisted about the idea of lordship. You know, is it required for salvation and all that sort of thing? I'm talking about it from a practical application standpoint. 
and the idea that you make Christ the Lord of your life. Now, I understand that he can be your savior and you can be a carnal good for nothing and still be saved. I get it. It's possible. But practically speaking, you want to allow him to be the one who's truly the Lord, truly the boss, right? So you can picture it this way. In your heart and in your life, there are only two locations. There are only two positions. One is a cross and one is a throne. And there's only two people in there. It's you and Jesus. And one of you is going to be on one and the other one of you is going to be on the other. And your decision is where are you putting Jesus and where are you putting you? Because if you put you on the throne, you know, guess what you've just done to Jesus? You nailed him back to the cross. But if you surrender and you put him on the throne, you crucify yourself and say, Lord, you make the decisions. I'm already dead. I've already got nothing. You've already given your life. You deserve to live it through me. The life Jesus is looking for you to live is his life. It's not your life. That's Colossians 3, 3 and 4. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who should be first place in your life. No, Christ, who is our life shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. That's why I said Galatians 2.20, another verse that you should have memorized. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Christ liveth in me. Okay, I'm crucified with Christ. Well, I'm still kicking and moving around here, but the truth of the matter is it's not me doing it. It's Christ living through me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the, that's the crucified life. That's the life he wants. You know what that means to you, Christian? That means that whatever time you've already lived, whether you've done well or not done well, before salvation, how many years, doesn't even matter. Whatever it is, whatever time you've already spent to the lusts of your flesh, it's enough. It's enough. Leave that behind. Move on to something new. Let that go. That didn't do anything for you. Give it a rest, man. Start living solely and completely unto him. That's 1 Peter 4. Listen to what Peter says about it. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Why? That he no longer, henceforth, no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge? The quick and the dead. It's the same context. It's Peter's version of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 in the judgment seat of Christ. It's the same idea. Enough with the past. It's time to move on with the future. And by the way, by the way, y'all, I know y'all are really, you're Americans, so you can't help it. You're dialed into this idea. What's fair? Is this fair? I don't know if that's fair. It doesn't sound fair to me. We're all about our rights. Is it fair? Uh, okay. How about between you and the Lord? Is it fair? For him to ask you to give your life for him after he gave his for you? Is it fair? Is it fair for you to say you surrender all to him and then renege on your deal and take it back for you? Is that fair? I mean, it's just something to think about. Back in verse 15, it says that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. That little term, should not, we tend to read that and think that, well, he shouldn't. It's kind of a, it's kind of a nice recommendation. I mean, you don't have to do it, but it's, it'd be good. No, it's not how it's used. That's not how it's used in the Bible. It's used either as a command or a certain outcome. 
So for example, let me give you some examples. Romans 6.6. 6, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Why? That the body of sin might be destroyed. Why? That henceforth, we should not serve sin. That, that should be the obvious outcome. 1 Corinthians 2.5. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men. Oh, but sometimes it can? No, it's never to do that. 1 Corinthians 10.6. These things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. 2 Corinthians 1.9, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raised the dead. And we should not henceforth live unto ourselves. See, because whenever we do, all that effort, well, it's not going to survive the judgment seat of Christ. That's going to be wood, hay, stubble, ashes. But whenever you're motivated whenever you're gripped by the love of Christ to forsake yourself and your personal desires and your ambitions, and you willingly surrender your life back to Jesus Christ daily, then, then, you're manifesting Him to this world. His glory. His deity. That's gold. That's gold. All right, our last point, the right substitution the right substitution now a substitution is a switch it's a change right and if you're saved y'all man wow you have been changed amen so in verses 16 and 17 there are some old things and there are some new things Wherefore, henceforth, we know no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, in verse 16, because we're now spiritual beings, alive unto God through Jesus Christ, we, there are some things that we no longer do, right? These are the old things. We no longer know any man according to the flesh. We no longer know Jesus Christ according to the flesh. Well, in 2020, we don't have the chance, but the guys who wrote the Bible in the day of Paul, they had the chance. They, first century Christians, knew Jesus Christ as a man physically, right? But not anymore after the resurrection and ascension. So those old things are passed away, and now the rest of us in church history know Jesus Christ only according to the Spirit of Christ that's living in us. That's a new thing. But similarly, we shouldn't know others according to the flesh anymore either, because that's an old thing, because the flesh doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to us anymore at all. Everybody has flesh, and flesh expires, but life goes on. Therefore, we should look at men as souls that need a Savior. We should view life spiritually. We should be able to look beyond the appearance, right, of things. Judge not according to appearance, John 7, 24. And be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ on this earth. That's new. That's a new mindset, a new perspective. And we can have that in a couple of different applications. I'll go through this one very quickly. Positionally, first, letter A, positionally. If any man be in Christ... Positionally, you are in Christ if you're saved. You could say, if any man be saved. We see that throughout. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Romans 12, 5. So we being many are one body in Christ. Okay, it's just another way to describe our new life in Jesus Christ. It says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Well, just think about that. If you're a new creature, that means you're no longer the one you used to be. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. You're no longer a simple human being like you used to be. You're now a spiritual son of God. You are a new creature. You're no longer a Jew or a Gentile, a non-Jew. Jew, non-Jew. You would think that would be all-encompassing. Yes, it's all-encompassing for humans. You're more than just that now. You have the life of Christ in you. You're now capable of spiritual life. 
You're now capable of serving God in righteousness, something that you were incapable of before salvation. Romans 6.18, being made free from sin, you become the servants of righteousness. He made you that. So positionally, because of that, who you are in Christ, there are some old things that passed away. Right? You're no longer just a Gentile. You're no longer just a two-part being, body and soul. You're no longer just a citizen of this world, of this county and country and state and community. You're no longer a slave to your old nature and sin. You're no longer on your way to hell, amen? Those things are passed away, praise the Lord. And then things are become new. You have new life in Christ. You're fully forgiven. You're eternally secure. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You're completely holy. You're seated in the heavenlies. You're spiritually connected to all other born-again believers. These are all new. That's what Jesus did for you when you got saved. I'd say that's the right substitution. And since that's true of you positionally, well, we've got to look at it practically, and that's what it'd be. But what does it look like to live in Christ daily? Well, do you think it's fair to say that a new creature behaves in a new way? I mean, you don't even have to realize it, but it's true. And it works. I know that when I got saved, I've told my story many times. I'll make this very brief. I was a college student, and I had never heard the gospel before. And so when I got saved, I knew nothing about the Bible. I didn't know about Old Testament, New Testament. I didn't know anything. And I had developed some bad habits in my life over 21 years of my life and, you know, whatever. So I got saved and those things just didn't immediately go away. And so I continued to do some of the dumb things that I had done. I'm not going to glorify them by even listing them for you. But a lot of that stuff that I was doing was still wrong and some of it, well, quite frankly, was illegal. So it was pretty obvious that it was wrong. And so when a lot of that was going on, I mean, I just, there was just something, it's kind of weird. After I got saved... Like, I just couldn't. I still didn't know the Bible. I just couldn't keep doing them anymore. I didn't know that this, what was, this is what was happening, but what was happening was there was a holy spirit living inside of me now. And I'm putting pollutants inside my body through my mouth, through my eyes, through my ears. And this Holy Spirit is rattling my cage from the inside saying, I don't like it. And I'm on the outside like, huh, I don't really like this anymore. I didn't really understand why. But there was a change. There was a change. That's what he does. The Bible calls that virtue. You could call it a substitution. So practically speaking, we should expect to see old things pass away. Amen? 1 John 2, 15 and 16, famous passage. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that's not of the Father, it's of the world. So the lust of the flesh, all these physical cravings, all these animalistic desires, the lust of the eyes, all of that covetousness and lust and greed, the pride of life and the selfishness and the arrogancy and, and all of the fighting for your rights. These are all old things. And they are passed away which means we need to put them to death practically in our lives. That's why Paul said what he said in Colossians 3, continuing on in verse 5, Mortify therefore your members, which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them, but now ye also put off, all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, lie not one to another, seeing you have put off the old man with his deeds. So put some things off. But because biblical Christianity is not just a set of rules to tell you what you can't do, God didn't show up just to ruin your fun. Our new life in Christ is an exchanged life. We gave ours away, but we got his. So there'll be new things to replace the old. 
new attitudes, new desires, new choices, new habits. So I go back to my story in college, and I no longer wanted to continue to get high. I no longer wanted to continue to listen to that music that praised sin and exalted the devil. I didn't want to anymore. But I'll tell you what I did want for the first time in my life. I wanted to redeem the time. I'd given 22 years of my life to the devil, and that was enough. I was behind the curve. I had to get caught up. I'll tell you what I wanted to do. I wanted to learn a Bible. People talking about the Bible, I was showing up. I wanted to hang out with God's people. I couldn't wait to go to church. I'd set my alarm and get up earlier on Sunday than I would on school days. I couldn't wait to be together with God's people. I wanted new things. And that's the continuation of the story in Colossians 3, starting in verse 10. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. You're living Christ's life through you. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of per perfectness. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, all things are become new. So I want you to know that I took the time and I did a deep word study in the original languages. You know what I found out? I found out that all things really only means all the things that you want to change. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's just a that's just a little Laodicean and joke there. That's, that's the kind of stuff you get at a lot of churches who are more interested in appearance, right? They, they want to just, eh, let's not talk too much about sin. I mean, the guys who write the big checks might get mad. We don't want that happening. No, all things means all things. In any language, by the way, it's pretty simple. You know what that is? That's redemption. That's when something or someone is redeemed. He's made new. So therefore, this is the last thing in your notes, you earn silver at the judgment seat of Christ when you make all things new. When you make all things new. Therefore, whatever you're holding back on and not allowing the Lord to substitute new things for, well, those are the things that are going to burn up at the judgment seat of Christ. You see... Your day of reckoning, it's coming. So is mine. 100% money-back guarantee. And the question is, what will the Lord find in you? What will remain through the judgment of fire? Will you have the right stuff? Will you have real substance to your ministry, investing in people? Will you have the right stimulus? Will you have the right motivation, the love of Christ? To deny yourself and let him live his life through your body. And will you have the right substitute? That changed life that leaves old things behind measurably and presses forward to new things. You see, whatever falls outside of those boundaries... That's just wood, hay, and stubble, and it's going to get burned up. But whatever you've done within and according to these guidelines in the power of the Holy Spirit with a pure attitude towards the Lord are going to yield glorious, eternal rewards. Gold, silver, and precious stones. But not for yourself. I mean, think about it. If you've earned those things, I mean, think about it. You didn't actually do it. You let the Lord do it through you. And since the Lord did it through you, when you receive those rewards, then those rewards that remain can then be returned back to Him as your gift 
of gratitude of all that he did for you. And you don't want to show up that day empty-handed. You don't want everybody laying their gifts of gratitude, which is the remnant of their entire life, at Christ's feet. And you standing back there like, dang. You don't want to be that guy. So, it ain't over till it's over. And if you've been off track, you can get on track. Let's pray about that. We're done.